Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is David Rundell, a former American diplomat who served for 30 years in the Foreign Service, including 15 in Saudi Arabia, and is widely regarded as one of America's leading experts on Saudi Arabia. In this episode, Alana and David discuss Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia, efforts to mend the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia in the aftermath of the death of Jamal Khashoggi and the current state of the global oil market. So anyway, David, again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to have this discussion. And uh, so let me begin. I mean, uh, so happened today uh, and tomorrow, President Biden is going to be in Saudi Arabia. I believe tomorrow, am I right? That's um, correct. I believe he arrives in Jeddah tomorrow evening. To tomorrow evening. The king is often in Jeddah for the Eid, and that's where he'll be. Right. So that's where the meeting will take place. Oh, that's right, yeah. And so there was a, quite a bit of controversy about this visit, specifically because of the tense relationship. What he said about MBS, that is Crown Prince Mohammed. Uh, of course, Mohammed has been accused of the, the killing of the, the reporter and the journalist Kusunki. Uh, and so um, Biden has been speaking extensively about the human rights. But nevertheless, the conditions on the international scene, the oil production, the war in, in uh, the Ukraine, have changed the dynamics, specifically in the, uh, the um, section, the area of uh, oil and oil supplies. So he made the decision to go. And there's and it's still an ongoing discussion whether it was wise on his part to do this trip at this point, and what his impact can or should be able to achieve. What's your take uh, on this to begin with? I think that some of President Biden's actions were ill-advised to begin with, that he drove a wedge between Saudi Arabia and the United States, which was not necessary to do. Saudi Arabia has been an ally and a partner of the United States for 60 years, or we 70 years, really. We have had many ups and downs in that relationship but it has always remained, and there have been times of great tension, but it has always remained within a certain set of boundaries. Let me give you some examples. 1973, there was an oil embargo. Uh, this was a result of uh, the Arab-Israeli war, the October war. Uh, the fact is that the Saudis initially tried to stop that or to minimize it. At the first OPEC meeting where the other Arabs, most notably led by Iraq, uh, wanted the immediate nationalization of all American banks and oil assets in the Middle East. And the Saudis fought back and resisted that. Uh, over time, the situation in the Arab world grew worse and uh, the public demand for some sort of action uh, escalated. And so the Saudis joined the consensus and had the um, in the Arab oil embargo. Uh, but it was not something that they set out to do. Nonetheless, it did great damage to the United States and to our economy. The point that I'm getting to is that as soon as that happened, Secretary of State Kissinger and Secretary of the Treasury Simon rather than insulting Saudi Arabia and trying to break the relationship, set about trying to strengthen the relationship 
to make Saudi Arabia intertwined with the American economy so that something like that would not happen. And they were really quite successful. So we rebuilt the relationship after something that was really very damaging to the United States. Another example would be the 9-11 attacks. And I, there's a big difference between the 73 oil embargo and the 9-11 attacks in the sense that the Saudi government did the oil embargo, the Saudi, the 9-11 commission and many other investigations have shown that the Saudi government had no role to play in the 9-11 attacks. And that in fact, Al Qaeda was attacking them as well and did attack them and continued to attack them. Uh, for many years. Uh, so they, and they knew that at the time of 9-11, they had already taken away bin Laden's money and his passports and bin Laden had formally declared war on them. So they were hardly friends of, of the people that did 9-11. Nonetheless, the fact that there were many people in the 9-11 attack who were Saudis, uh, again, sent the American-Saudi relationship into a tailspin and it was probably 18 months before our joint efforts on fighting Al-Qaeda brought us back together. So those are just what I'm saying is that, what the, that there have been historical examples of great tensions in the relationship, uh, which in my view uh, far exceeded the significance of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, the Arab oil embargo and 9-11 are historic events of great yes. magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, uh, while well, tragic and not to be minimized, what happened there was a foreign citizen was murdered in a foreign city by a foreign government. That does not really equate terribly closely to the United States. I mean, literally. But he did work, his, however, for the Washington Post. Yeah, he did work for an American newspaper. Uh, and I would argue that had he worked for the Khartoum Times, we probably never would have heard about this. Uh, it's not to minimize it. That's not to excuse it. That's not to say it's right. But the United States um, cannot decide to boycott every country that has a poor human rights record. Now, there may be people who think that's a good idea, but that's a rather naive way to run your foreign policy and it will rapidly damage both the prosperity and the uh, security of the American people. So that's, but that's another issue for the, and that's my own view on it, which is probably not what you want to hear. What you want to hear is what I think about uh, President Biden's trip. I think President Biden was ill-advised to insult the Saudis and to break the relationship. And that's the point I was just, I was starting to make before I got yeah. diverted. I want to be quick on that. Then I'll be, I'll be very quick. Is that in the September 11th and in the um, 1973, the relationship remained within a certain set of parameters. And this is because the relationship, while never very popular with the, either the Saudi or the American people, was maintained at a very high level by personal relationships between leaders. Never before had an American president insulted the Saudis so publicly, refused to take their phone call, um, and even President Obama, who didn't like the Saudis, visited Saudi Arabia more than any other president. He went there four times. Uh, and so I think President Biden was ill-advised in his uh, 
the way that he dealt with the Saudis. That said, he's recognized that that perhaps was a mistake and that he needs to change course. And I think people should be given credit for that. I think people who change course ought to be, you know, I, I think looking at the past is always about blame, which is kind of not very helpful. Uh, looking at the future is about choices. And I think he made a choice that the relationship is strategically important to the United States and not, not to uh, deteriorate any further. So I, I think he made a good decision to go. To I, I, man, I personally agree with the premise that he should uh, have gone, he should be there, and that uh, it's time to mend the relationship. But the, the controversy here, which is important, and uh, President Biden has been advocating and is a great um, um, advocate of human rights issues. And he linked directly the human rights issues was happening in Saudi Arabia to what happened to the murder of Khashoggi and Zayadam. And now he decided and he changed course because of the circumstances have changed. Now, what, what it is in your, your mind is going to be able to uh, achieve that is, is he going to, are we going to rehabilitate, so to speak, uh, Prince uh, Ben Salman? Or are we going to let this just go and, and uh, basically start a new chapter with Saudi Arabia, given the position that President Biden has taken? And now it's because of circumstances, he's decided to change course and, and, and do and, and take this trip. So how do we reconcile this? Now, many Americans in government among the Democratic Party and Republicans still feel that we are compromising severely a human rights issue by undertaking this kind of trip to a country that is known for its human rights abuses all along. You see, I would argue, and I would argue very strongly, and it's a subject that I know very well, that the people who make those comments are woefully misguided and that their concern is grossly out of proportion. If you want to look at the human rights records, of most countries in the Middle East with which we deal every day, many of which we give money to in the form of foreign aid, they have human rights records that are far worse than that in Saudi Arabia. And I'll just give you an example. We are trying, we are bending over backwards to improve our relations with Iran. Now, anyone who looks for a moment at the human rights record of Iran would have to say, how is it that you're boycotting Saudi Arabia and courting and wooing Iran? The Iranians, and this was in the newspaper, this is not a secret, they just tried to assassinate an entire busload of Israeli tourists in Istanbul. I think you're aware of that. It's, it yes, yes, yes. So this is a group that publicly is trying to assassinate tourists, and we're chasing after them, trying to become their friend. And one journalist who wasn't an American citizen, and I'm not saying that really makes all that much difference, but one journalist, and I would argue, I don't know this, but the Saudis do kidnap people. So do we. We call it rendition. We do it. We have done it. We've done it on quite an extensive basis. I know people that the Saudis have kidnapped and taken home. Uh, I believe that they were trying to kidnap him. I don't believe that they would try to murder him in their own consulate. That's pretty stupid, actually, but it could be. 
But I think they were actually trying to kidnap him and take him home. And it went wrong. And instead of admitting that it went wrong, they tried to cover it up and it became an explosive issue. Regardless, it was, it's not to be dismissed, but the world is not a black and white place. If you look, how many American bombs and drone strikes killed innocent Afghans? I can tell you hundreds, not one or two. Hundreds. No, I, I fully agree with that. Yeah. So, you know, to say that people who, you know, to say that we can't talk to him because they killed him. And, and let, me, let me be clear. On these drone strikes that we made in Afghanistan, we sometimes knew very well that innocent people would be killed. Okay, this is not like this was not uh, some accident. We knew that in order to get someone who we felt was dangerous to the United States, that some innocent people might be killed. Uh, so does that, are we so, so saintly that we now can say we refuse to talk to the Saudis? Uh, and the real question is, is it in our interest to talk to the Saudis? And I would argue that it very much is in our interest to talk to the Saudis. And it, it, this moralizing that I see on the parts of some of these people, and I'm sure this will incense them, uh, but uh, I find this narcissistic almost, uh, mm -hmm. certainly self-righteous, uh, soapboxing, whatever you want to call it, um, to be focused exclusively on a single issue like human rights, to the extent that you ignore all of the other interests of the United States uh, is, is, is sophomore, to be honest. And, it's, and it's, it's a policy that's pursued by people who've never actually had to uh, make decisions uh, for which they will then have to face the consequences. It's very easy to sit on some Sunday morning TV show and say all this, uh, but, but if you actually and, and I would include here the president of the United States, who is taking his responsibility to protect the prosperity and the security of the American people seriously, and understanding that in doing so, he needs to balance the totality of American interests. And one of those interests is standing up for human rights, but that is not the only interest. Uh, and so I believe that he was right to go to Saudi Arabia, and I wish him well in trying to do so. And as I said, I, I feel the same way that he should have gone, he should go, and I'm glad he is there. And I'm glad that we began seriously to mend the relationship with Saudi Let me just, Arabia. can I, I interrupt you on one last thing that I meant no, to it's say. It's okay, this. sure. Um, the people who are so concerned about human rights, which is not, I'm not to dismiss it as irrelevant, but they need to understand that not only does hum, our human rights actually in many ways, I keep seeing on TV the terrible human rights record of Saudi Arabia. Terrible human rights record compared to whom? Compared to Turkey? You know, there are more journalists in prison in Turkey than there are journalists in Saudi Arabia. No doubt about that. No so what are you, why are you, I mean, I'm, that's not an excuse, but it, it does say that things need to be kept in proportion uh, and that you need balance and that an exclusive focus on Jamal Khashoggi, which seems to have become almost a, uh, a, a mindless knee-jerk reaction among some people in, in Washington, is foolish and is not helpful. Uh, I they, agree. They yeah, I, I also feel that, you know, uh, although we have to be concerned about human rights issues, that is, if we want to influence Saudi Arabia in that regard, to improve its uh, uh, human rights 
uh, situation is that we can do so better through engagement rather than try to isolate or um, end any kind of uh, dialogue between us and Saudi Arabia. So I think engaging Saudi Arabia at this juncture might be more helpful. That is, we would, we would be able to exert, you know, albeit tacitly, quietly, more influence in terms of Saudis correcting the human rights record um, through engagement rather than you through... Know, you raise, you raise a, a, an excellent point. Um, I would make three points. First of all, Saudi Arabia is making tremendous strides in terms of social change, and in particular, women's rights and religious tolerance. These are things which the people who focus so much on Jamal Khashoggi, I believe, by and large support. And the Saudis have made more progress on those two issues in the last three or four years than any other Arab country. And this is not my opinion. And anyone who cares to go and examine the facts will see that uh, there is a tremendous change in the role of women. Yes, we all heard that women can now drive, but you know, before they couldn't get a passport, they couldn't travel abroad, they couldn't open a bank account, they couldn't, they couldn't sit where they wanted to in a restaurant, they couldn't put on the clothes that they wanted. Uh, they couldn't have a cesarean delivery if they wanted without the permission of their husband or their father. That's all gone. The religious yeah, police yeah. have been taken off the street by and large, and now they, they've actually started coming back a little bit, but they came back in a rather different version. Now they're much more friendly uh, and polite. Uh, the minister of Saudi, the former minister of Saudi Islamic affairs went to the commemoration ceremony at Auschwitz. Now that's, that would not, there is now actually a chief rabbi of Saudi Arabia. When, I, mm -hmm. when that individual called me and said, I'm going to Saudi Arabia, I'd like some advice. I thought it was a joke. I thought, you got to be kidding me. There's some guy who's going to be the head rabbi of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, so these things are not insignificant. They were not easy for the king of Saudi Arabia to implement. I mean, he did. The, he got, you know, you talk about taking some political heat. He definitely took political heat on doing all of those things. So instead of beating up on him for what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, egregious though it was, and I think he's accepted that, and I think that you know he's not, it's not going to happen again. And again, the people who talk about, um, who focus so single-mindedly on this issue are by and large the same people who believe that punishment and prison is meant to, not to just throw you in jail and punish you, but it's meant to correct your behavior so that you can rejoin the society. That's really the, I think the liberal and I would argue the correct view of what, why do you punish somebody? Just because you have some Old Testament view of an eye for an eye or because you have the view that we're gonna rehabilitate you and bring you back into the family of nations. So I would argue that the time is, has come and probably has passed to recognize what Mohammed bin Salman is trying to do in his own country uh, and to, to, to accept that. And you know, I, I thought of one other point, which is that um, when you talk about countries that have a pretty bad human rights record, nothing that Mohammed bin Salman is doing in remotely compares to what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs. Uh, so he doesn't build concentration. I mean, I mean, I mean, the, so the, the people, I think, yeah. So anyway, people. I think these things need to be kept in perspective. And I, and I agree with what I'm saying with your point that you cannot 
help, you cannot hope to change someone's perspective or actions by punishing them. The United States needs to recognize, and your listeners, I hope, are listening closely because the times they are changing. The days that the United States had when we were the sole hegemon on this planet, which existed in the 25 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, are over. They are over. The days that we, we are now in a multipolar world, a much more normal world if you look at the way history is behaved. The days that we can pick up the phone and tell you what to do are rapidly fading. And the great humiliation we suffered in Kabul, and quite frankly, the humiliation we are suffering now by the fact that our president has to go with his cup and beg for oil, uh, that um, these, these are indications that the world has changed. I cannot imagine that, I see you have a picture of John Kennedy on your wall, or Franklin Roosevelt, or Dwight Eisenhower. I cannot imagine them getting on a plane and flying to Saudi Arabia to supplicate uh, and ask for oil. I quite frankly, I can't imagine Bill Clinton having never to do that. Times have changed. Uh, and the United States is going to have to recognize that we have to engage with people and cannot just tell them what to do. I mean, I mean, obviously, there are said domestic pressure, there's European pressure. I mean, the world in the Ukraine has changed the entire dynamic of the energy on a global scale. And, and I think that's in and of itself justified, at least in part, uh, by the visit. But I think your point is certainly well taken. That is, uh, whereas we need to change direction because the conditions in the international scene have changed, we ought nevertheless continue our effort to try to improve human rights relations. But as I said before, I feel that should be done tacitly, that should be done consistently, but without necessarily linking directly and openly, uh, publicly, to the, between the two, that is, we have geostrategic interest in the area, in the region, and we have to pursue that, uh, not necessarily by abandoning our commitment to human rights issues, but by dealing with on a separate track. I think the Chinese do this very well. Chinese want to transact with anybody, and they do transact with anyone on any level, but they do not want to get involved in any uh, domestic human rights issues. For them, that's a taboo. And, and we have learned this uh, in, in trying to deal with, with, with China over so many years. But let's leave and this. I, I, I would, I would, I, you know, I don't want us to, um, to people just to think that we have this all written so we agree on everything. Um, I want to emphasize that we should support human rights because that is part of our attractiveness to other countries and it is a source of our power. We do have an ideology which most people, when they believe that we're actually practicing it, do find attractive. And that's not the case for the Chinese. Uh, so, you know, when you look at how we compete with the Chinese, one of the ways we compete with the Chinese is the fact that we promote freedom and human rights, and they certainly do not. And that does make us attractive to some, to make it, it's a soft power that we have and we shouldn't squander it. So I wouldn't want to see us become completely like the Chinese where- oh, No, we, no, no, I, I didn't mean to just, say that. I no, I, I, I don't think you did, but you know, no, they no. say, look, we don't care whether you, you know, hang gays or 
whatever you want to do is fine with us, you know. Um, and that's, I think we have a role in the world, which not only is the right thing to do, but is constructive to our own interests yes. to be seen as a defender of human rights. I think what I'm trying to say is that that cannot be the only thing that we can focus on. And we need to focus on it intelligently. And I think we focused on the Jamal Khashoggi thing enough. I know, I, I agree with you on that point. And I think we, we, we now that he is visiting there, the, the dynamics of the relationship is changing. And we now begin, we'll have to build on that. On that. Uh, and while continue, as I said earlier, time and again, that we should not necessarily neglect uh, human rights violations, wherever they may happen, be that Saudi Arabia, Israel, and elsewhere. For example, my 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 view, Israel is committing gross human rights violations uh, against the Palestinians. And what are we doing about that? Uh, very, well, you know little, about the Palestinian, the very little indeed. The lady who got murdered or assassinated, the journalist who got assassinated there. Um, you know, that doesn't seem to have gotten anywhere near as much attention. Exactly, in the exactly. So, and also there is that, that element that is we sort of distinguish between who are we going to hold accountable or we are, who are we, what country we're not going to hold accountable. So let, let's, however, move, move uh, into the next point that I want to mention to you now. Uh, Biden is there and he has a certain objective other than trying, obviously, mending the relationship is very important. But what uh, what are other objectives that he's trying to achieve, and what is your where you view whether he's be, be able to, to do so? I want to mention two or three points. One, obviously, he would like to see Saudi Arabia produce more oil. That is to the tune of five hundred thousand, maybe seven hundred fifty thousand barrels a day, because he feels that is going to ease the pressure, the ease specifically because of the inflation, how much the gasoline house costs, etc. Sorry, did you Second, have a number there? You, you, what was the number you said? Do you think he's going to ask for what number? Uh, I said a couple of things. One is oil. That is, he would like to see, I'm sure, that Saudi Arabia increases oil production. That's how, one, much, how much do you think? Uh, I'm, well, I mean, we were told that 500,000 barrels a day, maybe even a little bit more than that. I don't think they have the capacity to go much beyond that. I know you agree or disagree, but that's what we I understand. The second thing he's trying to also, other than mending the relationship, is to try to promote regional security. That's some kind of formal or informal alliance between Israel and the Gulf states, including that would also include um, other than Gulf states, uh, Jordan, perhaps even Iraq and Egypt. And so that, that is another objective that he's got. And of course, meeting with the leaders of these various countries, that is, in my view, it's extremely important. To what extent, from your perspective, knowing the region as well as you do, he might be able to succeed in achieving part or in full these two main objectives that he has in mind? Okay. Um, the first question is about oil. I believe that he will be able to come away with a headline that he got more oil. How much is anybody's guess, but I would, I would hope he gets it 250,000 barrels a day at the least. And if he can get more than that, good for him. Uh, I don't think that will change the price at the pump for the American people. I doubt it would change it more than 10%. 10% is not insignificant. 
but he's not going to get the price of oil back down to two dollars a gallon. Uh, and I, I would be surprised to, that if you know three months from now the price of oil is much below a hundred dollars a barrel. I could be wrong. You know, guessing on oil prices has got too many factors that nobody can really guess about. But the answer to your question is, I believe he will come home with a headline that says, "I got more oil." Now, this. Um, well, before you proceed, ask, may I ask you, before you proceed, don't, do you think that it will have also psychological uh, aspect, dimension to it, whether it's 250,000 or 500,000 barrels a day, that is beyond the quantity itself, would that also send it, uh, also will have a psychological dimension in terms of now we're going to have more oil? Because <clears throat> as I see, the supply of oil was not diminished in terms of production, with or without the war in the Ukraine. It is a question of distribution, that is, Russia has been, you know, uh, the West is buying less and less oil from Russia, and so they need new sources of oil. That is, that is the issue here, rather well, than look, the, the overall quantity that's being produced by the various countries that produce oil. Look, I, I didn't want to get in, all right. Um, I'm sure that some of the listeners found some of the things I've said controversial already, but um, I will, and I wasn't going to mention this, but the reality is the reason oil prices have gone up, I see people talking about this as a Putin price hike. Putin didn't do anything he didn't, uh, to affect oil prices. He invaded the Ukraine. In and of itself, invading the Ukraine did nothing to affect oil prices. Exactly what affected right, yeah. the oil prices was our response. Okay, this is a self-inflicted inflation. We are the ones who decided to put sanctions on Russia. We are the ones that decided to say, you can't buy Russian oil, you shouldn't buy Russian gas. We aren't gonna insure Russian ships. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna chase you if you, um, if you buy Russian oil. Um, now you gotta remember, so we did this to ourselves. okay? This was not a result of the invasion. This is a result of our response to the invasion, which I consider to have been extremely ill-considered, extremely ill-considered. Why is but, that? But, but, but do you really think that, that with the invasion, we should have done absolutely nothing? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And, I didn't say and if that. you don't impose sanctions, what other no, tools, means we have in order to Are send a clear to, message look, to Russia? My friend, my friend, what have we achieved? It's just, again, this is, this is doing something to appear to do something I listened to President Biden tell me that he was going to turn the ruble to rubble by imposing all these great sanctions. And what happened? The Russians are laughing, okay? The ruble is now stronger than it was before he invaded. His trade surplus has doubled, all right? He's making more money. Meanwhile, Germany is going into recession, which is gonna get worse in the winter. So what have we done? It's like the Jamal Khashoggi thing. We stood on our box and beat our chest and told everyone how righteous we were. And all we and did we did we achieve anything? Did we did well, we? What make, would you have we, done if you were President Biden? I would have told the Ukrainians to negotiate, and that's what I tell them today. But they were willing to negotiate. No, they weren't. Zelensky, they're not, will, they are not willing said, to negotiate. No, come on, my friend. They are not willing to negotiate today. The Donbas is gone. Okay. They are not going to get the Donbass back unless you want to send kids from the United States to die. All right. Unless you want to commit NATO ground troops 
you are not going to get back the dollar. And I don't think I don't think such a thing should be aimed for because I think this so was Russia's main objective, need, and he achieved that objective more or less. So at this point. what you need now to do is negotiate. The Ukrainians need to stop talking about, as they do every day, about the temporary occupied Donbass, and they need to recognize that that is gone. And they need to stop getting more Ukrainians killed in this war that could go on forever. And I, and I think to some extent we're to blame for that because we're quite happy to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. Um, so look, this is, I didn't come here today to talk about Ukraine. I, I'm happy no, to no, talk I, about- No, absolutely, I'm happy let's see the other side. Let's see the other I'll, side, yes. I, I'll talk about the oil situation, the oil situation, which we inflicted upon ourselves. And you gotta remember something else. What we've effective, we've really afflicted this on ourselves because the Chinese are buying, they're not, you know, we've destroyed the world price for oil. There's now a huge black market for oil. Most people in the world, 80% of the number of humans on the planet are not playing ball with these sanctions. The Chinese are buying Russian oil. The Indians are buying Russian oil. The South Koreans are buying Russian oil. The Egyptians, the Turks. You know, in some cases, even the Arabs are now buying Russian oil at $60 a barrel and then selling their own oil at $100 a barrel. I mean, this is this thing has couldn't have backfired more. So you tell me we should have done something. Well, I would say do something smart. Don't do something stupid like this. And yet, you know, most people are unaware of the facts, perhaps that I just explained to you. But the, the truth of the matter is, the Russian ruble is stronger than it was. These are not hard facts to find, and the Russian trade surplus has doubled in a year. So Putin is and and we were again in a while. We don't want to talk about it. Not really. Think we should focus back go back to south yeah okay right so fine i'll, I'll go back to, know, I, I'll go I just want yeah let's just uh, if you can uh, you know the, the second question is that you know obviously there's also uh, sort of uh, you know there's a cartel uh, russia is part of that cartel saudi arabia does not want to mess it mess its relationship with russia as far as that goes correct. just the same correct uh, nor does it we want to do that with china so how is that going to be uh, uh, reconciled as far as uh, President Biden is concerned. It's not. The Saudis are not going to leave OPEC plus. Okay. They're not going to trash OPEC. They're not going to disband OPEC and they're not going to disband OPEC plus. Uh, and why should they? Because we ask them to after we, after, you know, they no longer depend on us to the extent that they, they no longer consider us a reliable friend. And how, why should they after the president called him a pariah? Uh, and said he was going to treat them like that. So no, they're not, they're not going to, because of one photo op and one handshake and one smile, completely overturn things which are in their own self-interest. Uh, so no, they're not going to well, break but up. Then, but then again, you know, bilateral relations with the United States transcend, in my view, in, uh, or just oil, the export of oil. Absolutely. Of oil. And there's so many other elements and yeah, in the United States and, and Saudi Arabia, so even you know this issue with oil, however they increase their production, it's, let's set it aside for the time being. But there are other bilateral relationships in terms of security, in terms of military aid, and all the technology and all of that. It's con will continue, has been, and will continue to be uh, grow and progress. Do you feel? Do you feel that this visit is going to further deepen these ties? Uh, given that perhaps this issue with Kazogi is, is over and these tasks are going to be deepened further. 
And would that um, bring about perhaps um, with the second part of my question to you, uh, um, the development of some kind of security regional alliance between Israel and the Gulf state, including will include also Jordan, Iraq, possibly in Egypt, uh, specifically because of the Iranian threat. Do you, to what extent do you feel he might advance this, uh, this uh, objective? Um, okay. Based, based on your I, I, knowledge. I'm gonna make two very quick points to finish the oil issue. Number one, the Saudis probably do have the capacity to do what they say. I've been watching it for 40 years. They've never claimed that they had capacity that they lacked. I don't go on into all the details. I know people are now saying the Saudis don't have the capacity. They're already tapped out. That's probably, nobody knows for sure, but I can tell you having watched this for a long time, they don't lie. And when they've been called upon, they've always come through. That's just a historical fact. You can go check it out. Um, the second thing is the, the reason that they're going to increase oil production is not because President Biden asked them for it. It's because they don't want the world to go into a recession, okay? They do not want to see demand destruction. They would, they would probably have done this whether the president went there or not. The truth is they don't want, they do not, they have a lot of oil. They wanna to continue to sell their oil for a long time. And they, when the global economy goes into a recession, that's bad for demand. So they like to get a high price, but not so high that it tips us into recession. So those are, those are the two points, the final points to make on oil. Right. Uh, on, the, on the second, uh, the question of um, regional defense. Well, first of all, let's start off with, I think the, the, high, the, the headline issue is the Saudi relationship with Israel. Saudi Arabia is a status quo power that above all wants peace and stability. Why is that? That's because they are rich and content and happy. And by and large, people who are rich and content and happy like peace. Uh, there are other countries, Iran comes to mind, which are by nature revolutionary and want to destabilize and change. They, they are not happy with the status quo. They want basically, they, they want to drive the West out of the Middle East. And they explicitly say that every day. And they want to get rid of Israel, which they explicitly say every day. So they're not a status quo power. The Saudis don't like things that destabilize the region, whether that was an Iranian revolution or whether that was Nasser and his Arab socialism in the 60s. Uh, they didn't like it. They, don't like the, they didn't like the Arab Spring. They don't like things that rock the boat. So they would like to get the Arab-Israeli dispute resolved, again, not because we ask them to do it, but because they see because it as in their the own interest. interest. Of course. Precisely. And they have tried to do it and they have supported our efforts over time. And in. I mean, after all, it was the Saudis who started with Arab Peace Initiative going back 20 years ago. I mean, they de facto actually recognize Israel conditionally going back 20 years. So the Saudis have been in the forefront in trying to resolve the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Please proceed. I mean, that's that's no, where I'm, I'm glad you interjected that because there are many Americans who don't understand that. Of King, Fahad, King Fahad and King Abdullah really moved the Arab consensus to one from we can't talk to Israel under any circumstances to, yeah, let's make a deal. And they're the ones that did that. And they spent a lot of money, quite frankly. Uh, and also a lot of political capital, political um, capital. Getting, getting people to agree to that. So that, and 
Again, why did they do that? Because we told them to? No, they did that because it's in their interest. Okay. The one point I would add that's different now is that there is a generational change in Saudi Arabia. The younger people who now are the majority are people under 35, people under 30. They do not share the deep Arab nationalist commitment to the Palestinian cause that, the, that their fathers and grandfathers had. Uh, that's just a fact. They see their, kid, they see their friends in Dubai uh, going to Tel Aviv to go to the beach, and they see their business friends making deals. And they say, hey, you know, maybe we should join the bandwagon too. So there is a definite movement in Saudi Arabia towards that direction. Mm -hmm. um, that said, they are constrained to some extent, to a considerable extent, really, by two factors. One is that they are the leaders, if you will, the de facto leaders of the Muslim world. And therefore, they can't ignore what all the other Muslims say. They have to hopefully try and build a consensus uh, for them to be elected. They don't want to be the seen out in front as the leader. They have to build a consensus. Second thing is that they have enemies, most notably Iran. And so if they came out and recognized um, Israel tomorrow without getting something in return, uh, pretty major, then the Iranians would jump up and down and scream and say, you see, these guys shouldn't be in charge of Mecca and that we, we should... Uh, internationalized Mecca, which is something they've been trying to do for a long time. So um, any of it, those are the constraints, I think, that, that the Saudis operate under. The final thing to say about any, so I do not expect a great breakthrough on, I expect some more oil. I expect some comments about the Arab-Israeli agreement or the relationship but I do not expect a great breakthrough. And the things that I expect to hear are, they're going to talk about overflights of Israeli aircraft over Saudi Arabia. They're gonna make it sound like that's something new. It's been going on for two years. I don't really, I find it sort of almost propaganda for them to use that as a talking point. It's, it's not new, it's happening. Uh, the same thing with the Saudis accepting the Camp David provisions on the Red Sea Islands. That's something they did two years ago. These are things that happened under Trump. Okay, this is not new, but they're gonna, somehow I see them, I see it appearing in the newspapers if it's some big new achievement. Oh, okay, fine, that's, that's what they wanna use for their talking points, uh, but it's not really achievement. And the reason it's not gonna be an achievement but that this trick was not gonna do much for the Arab-Israeli relationship is very simple. Neither the Arabs, not, let me phrase that differently, neither the Israelis nor the Saudis want the Americans to be some kind of an intermediary and a broker. They don't need the Americans. They have their own interests for improving their relationship. They have their own channels for doing so. And quite frankly, they would like the United States to stay out of it. Uh, the, the Americans will just complicate it for you. And I need, yeah, obviously, I mean, look, uh, I know, I know, per personally, I know because I've had, I have and continue to have significant contacts in the region. I mean, Israel and Saudi Arabia have been collaborating for nearly 15 years, maybe even more than that. Israel has been providing intelligence specifically because the, the common enemy, which is Iran. And so they see eye to eye in so many different areas. And so it is all under, you know, it's done quietly, but it is there. 
And mind you, without the Saudi nodding and um, to the UAE as well as Bahrain and others, they would not have gone uh, further in normalizing relations with Israel. So, so, so I think there's almost normal relations, but it is not formal. The question is whether this is, and I agree with you, they will not make such a move until they get something significant in return. And that significant thing in return is the settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I still think they support the creation of an independent Palestinian state. They, of course, are concerned about the future of Jerusalem. And as long as Israel holds on to that position at Jerusalem, all of it, East and West Israel capital, that is a major stumbling block as far as the Saudis are concerned. So there are these issues. And I agree with you with the premise that he will not be able to come up and declare now there is a, a regional alliance. But I do feel, however, that the kind this process ought to continue as long as there is no agreement with Iran. And as long as Iran continues to pose a threat uh, to, to the Arab state in that region in particular, as well as to Israel. So, I, I, whereas you, you feel that the United States should play absolutely no role in that, but the United States does have a role. America is a present in the Middle East. We are in Bahrain. We have a 60, we have 50. We have, uh, we have the, some of the largest military installation in, the, in these countries in the Gulf. So you cannot say that the United States should not be involved in any- Well, I'm not sure, maybe I, maybe I wasn't clear. Uh, I'm not sure what you, what I said or what you heard. Um, what I said is that in brokering the establishment of relations between Israel and the United States, or sorry, Israel and Saudi Arabia, neither party welcomes our involvement in that process. That's not a question for of what we think we should do or what we want to do. That's a question of what the parties involved in the negotiations would like. Now, the second well, question- If I may, if I may, I've had a conversation with some Israelis and I was in the know. I was, and they were very clear. So one of the requests were made by Israelis is to try to convince to persuade, to, at least to some extent, the Saudis to move toward normalization. That was one of the things that the Israelis have asked the Biden, Biden, President Biden, to try to, to do. And so this is, this is whether Israel does want the United States, because they know one thing, without the United States involvement in this, the Saudis may not make further progress in the, in the, in the direction of normalization of relations. Between the two. Okay, countries. well, that differs from my understanding because the Israelis that I have spoken with um, present a different picture. And they would, they would point to the fact that um, the United States is often seen by them as, um, I don't, wouldn't say unhelpful, I don't know what words you want to use, but unnecessary. And they would give you the example of the Oslo Accords which were do completely done without the knowledge uh, involved yeah, in the United, that was, of the United that States. Was then, uh, that was so. then, but yeah. the point that they would make is that the reason was the same, is that they felt that the involvement of the United States uh, complicates things. Let's just put it, let's just leave it at that. So they didn't want the Americans involved in the Oslo thing, which is why they did it in Oslo. So they would never, the Americans wouldn't know what was going on. Um, so the Israelis I talk to anyway, but uh, have expressed to me 
the view that they have plenty of ways to talk to the Saudis. They are talking to the oh, Saudis. Oh, they do. And, Absolutely, and they, they, do. they don't need. Now, would you, would it be helpful for the United States to say yes to the Saudis? You know, it would be a good idea for you to recognize uh, Israel. I'm sure that would be helpful, and I'm sure we say that all the time. I'm, so I don't think we really disagree with each other. I think your second part of your question, though, relates to this creation of what people are referring to as an Arab NATO. Um, I think that's a great idea. I hope they succeed. And why, and why do I think that's a great idea? I don't know of any country that has set out to get a nuclear weapon that has not achieved a nuclear weapon, whether that was India, Pakistan, Israel, North Korea. Uh, and in, in many of those cases, people tried to stop it and they were unsuccessful. I don't think that uh, you're going to be permanently, even the, even the uh, Iran nuclear agreement, uh, more or less, the one negotiated by Obama said, you know, in 15 years, you can do what you like. Uh, so I think that the odds of the Iranians getting some kind of a nuclear weapon are not uh, remote or insignificant. And I think that when that happens, that you could very easily see a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. The Saudis have said explicitly that they are not going to sit idly by and let the Iranians get a bomb and they're not going to get one. Yes, this is precisely the Egyptians, the Egyptians and the Turks are in the same boat. So if you want to prevent, I'll just finish my point very quickly. I'm sorry, I'm not. No, 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 no problem. Please do. Uh, if you want to stop that, and that to me is a horror show, to watch the Turks, the Arab, the Saudis, and the Egyptians all race after nuclear weapons. Uh, if you want to stop that, you're going to have to give these people some very serious uh, commitment. Our commitment was strong enough that the Germans and the Japanese did not go and build nuclear weapons. Uh, they they felt okay. We we're we're content. We're we we you you'll take care of us. We don't need to build a nuclear bomb. Uh, I don't know whether that's capable, whether we could do that for the Arabs or not. But I think without some kind of uh, Arab NATO or something that gives these people a sense that they don't have to worry about being attacked by Iran, uh, we're going to, you know, the, you know, you win it, the way you win at chess or foreign affairs is not by figuring out what the problem is today. It's by looking and seeing what is the next move or what is the two yeah. moves down the road. And two moves down the road, I don't need to see a nuclear arms race in the in the Middle East. So yes, I think that trying to create this this um, defense against Iran is a is a very good idea, and hopefully they will succeed at that. Yeah, and I think you know, as far as this goes, obviously the United States must and would have to play significant role. That is, such a security alliance would have to involve the United States in one form or another. Absolutely, that and, would. And, I mean, if you recall Hillary Clinton when she was running for president, she advanced the idea of providing the region with a nuclear umbrella, that is to dissuade Iran. That is to basically the message to Iran would be, even if you create, if you obtain a nuclear weapon, that's going to be neutralized because the region would be covered by nuclear umbrella that is that the United States would be providing. We are not there yet. But I think uh, U.S. role in that regard remain indispensable, and and um, uh, the the drive towards creating this kind of alliance should be continued, uh, regardless of what, what Iran is going to do or not. That security alliance is necessary because we continue to experience turmoils 
uh, you know, in various places and throughout the region and, and uh, settling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and that that kind of an umbrella, Israeli-Arab conflict for that matter, and that that kind of umbrella could be extremely uh, useful and important for the United States the strategic interests in the region, just the same. We agree that some kind of uh, Arab NATO to protect the Arabs from Iran is a good idea. At least I think we agree on that. The, to me, the key, the most hopeful achievement of Biden's visit is to begin to change public perception in the United States of Saudi Arabia by pointing out to them the very extensive economic and social changes that are taking place there. And that is important because if the president came home to, to tomorrow and said, I've got a treaty here and we're gonna have a Arab NATO, he would have just about as much luck as Woodrow Wilson did when he came home and said, look at this, I've got a Versailles treaty, let's sign up. And the Senate said, are you kidding me? Forget it, we're not gonna join this thing. And I think that's what would happen today. If people came home and said, hey, let's, let's make Saudi Arabia a NATO partner, the same people who hate the Saudis because of Jamal Khashoggi would start screaming. And so you really have to begin, if you're gonna do this to incorporate Saudi Arabia into a larger security uh, structure, which includes Egypt and Turkey and Israel, uh, you're gonna to have to start changing some attitudes in the United States. And I think that to me is perhaps the most, uh, potentially the most valuable thing of this trip. I, I, I agree with you on that point. <laughs> well, well again, wish him luck. Uh, wish him luck. You've got to give the guy credit. I mean, he's trying, yes. you know, and, and right. it's not easy to admit you were wrong. Okay. I mean, you know, it's not. Nobody likes to admit they were wrong. Uh, and and I, I, know, I know that is admirable on his part. And I agree with you that in this particular case, he has to balance between the two issues and the, the condition, the geo, the condition in, in the world today requires some change, of course, and the United States ought to, take, to have taken that change. And I'm glad that Biden realized that and made that decision to go, in spite of the fact that there was so much criticism around his um, planned visit. I, I would very much like, if you, if you are open to this, we'll have another discussion because there's so much more we can talk about as far as the region is concerned, of which you are so, so much familiar with. Uh, so th I want to thank you again for this part to begin with. I, I would simply say that my expertise is on things that relate to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can talk about other things in general, but unless it touches on Saudi Arabia in some way, I'm real, I don't really consider myself an expert, but uh, except on oil. I, that's the only other thing. I, know. I, 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 <laughs> I would say that, um, you know, I, produ I, am, I am an oil producer personally myself. Uh -huh. uh, I, I uh, operate oil wells in West Texas. Ah, uh, and uh, so I have a somewhat unique um, perspective, yeah. Knowledge in the sense that, you know, I'm probably the only guy who comes on TV who talks about uh, Saudi Arabia, who actually uh, is on a daily basis involved in uh, exploration and production of oil and gas. Uh, and has a, I have a, like pretty extensive technical knowledge of how that works and how the markets function. So that gives me a little different uh, view 
of things. Uh, that, that said, it doesn't change my bottom line. Uh, while this high, and this is my last comment, while these high oil prices are very good for David Rundell personally, and the David Rundell is laughing uh, all the way to the bank, uh, just like King Salman, uh, David Rundell at the, at the end of the day is an American. And I don't like to see the American economy uh, driven to a recession. And I definitely don't, and, and I like to personalize that by saying that, you know, it's, it's really, it's the less well-off Americans who end up paying the price for this. Uh, right, right. The, 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 you know, the single mom trying to hold down a minimum wage job, not the guy who goes to his office in, on the, in Washington on the Metro or drives his Tesla to work. Uh, those, those, are, those are not the people who are paying the price for this high, high gasoline price. So I would like to see the gasoline prices come down. Uh, and let's hope we well, can. Well, hopefully, you know, it started to come down a little bit, uh, 15, 20 cents a gallon here and there. And we hope that will go a little further than that. Um, so let's hope for the best. All right. Yeah, again, Very good. Well, enjoy, the, enjoy a summer day in the Hudson <laughs> Valley. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. You thank you, care. David. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.